This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we're doing something a little different. It's a live version of Crosscut Reports. And it's all about the Washington State Legislative Session, which wrapped on April 23rd. This conversation was recorded on May 4th as part of the Crosscut Ideas Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Crosscut Festival. I'm Sarah Bernard. I talked with Crosscut State Politics reporter Joseph O'Sullivan and Melissa Santos, a reporter with Axios Seattle, about a number of new laws that impact gun ownership, abortion and gender-affirming care, and housing. We also talked about lawmakers' last-minute failure to find a fix for the state's temporary drug possession law, and a little bit about Governor Inslee's recent announcement that he will not be running for a fourth term in office. It's a rundown of the highlights and lowlights of the session from a couple of journalists who know a lot about all of it. Last thing, this is just one of dozens of great conversations that were part of the Crosscut Ideas Festival this year. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to Crosscut Talks. That podcast will be dropping new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday for the next few months. Melissa and Joe, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right. So, Joe, a lot has happened over these past months, a lot. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you what you think the biggest headline is uh, to come out of the legislative session this year. There's a lot of big stuff on housing and lawmakers. There are a lot of big things overall, but I think the thing that really grabbed um, when you look sort of national headlines and stuff was uh, the firearms restrictions that we passed uh, here at the legislature. Three uh, pretty big bills, but of course the ban on the on the um, sale or importation and distribution of assault weapons is is kind of the big the, the biggest one, and that's the sort of thing that. Um, Democratic lawmakers have sponsored for years and years of the legislature. It's gone nowhere. Uh, often, like other really ambitious firearms proposals, it, it sort of sat around. Uh, and uh, this year was the year they felt uh, they could move it, and they uh, pushed it through, and uh, the governor uh, signed the law uh, just recently. What does this new ban on assault weapons do exactly? What kind of weapons are we talking about, and what kind of restrictions? So the bill uh, sort of creates a definition of what an assault-style weapon is, you know, based on sort of components on the weapon, um, semi-automatic rifles, you know, AR-15s, uh, uh, weapons like that. There's some, I believe, semi-automatic handguns and semi-automatic shotguns that are included in there as well. So those are no longer going to be available for sale. In Washington State, if you already own one of those, you are still allowed to possess it. Uh, but you can't import them in, you can't transfer them, uh, broadly speaking, and, and, and they can't be sold. Mm-hmm. And Melissa, um, Joe touched on this a little bit. Um, I understand, you know, the assault weapons ban, this is legislation that Governor Inslee, Attorney Bob, General Bob Ferguson specifically requested. This is legislation that Democratic lawmakers, some of them have been leaning into for some years. Why do you think it passed now? Well, the lawmakers were pretty open last year saying we have a Democratic majority. We actually gained seats in a year when Democrats were thought to be destined to lose seats. They gained a seat or two, I think two total in the legislature. And they did that after they passed a ban on high capacity gun magazines. And the what one of the lawmakers, the Senate uh, majority floor leader, I think, in fact, said to me is we didn't face any electoral consequences for doing gun measures. The voters seem on board with what we're doing. 
we think we can go after an assault weapons ban, essentially. And that um, they did get a few more of an extra vote or two through that election. But more than that, it sort of said that this wasn't an issue that's going to hurt them at the ballot box and people either support it or um, are okay with what they're doing. And they went forward and they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe, I know you've done some reporting on this too. There's sort of like a, it seems like a sea change that's been going on in the past decade in, in Washington. I mean, it used to be that uh, even Democratic lawmakers kind of didn't want to touch some of this stuff, right? Yeah. So a little bit of history. If you go back to the late 1990s, there was actually a statewide initiative to put um, require trigger locks for handguns. And that, that ballot measure failed by two to one across the state. Um, so to sort of give you some context. And then Democratic lawmakers would openly said for years after that, you know, they didn't want to put new restrictions through. And then it, you started to see ballot measures get on the November ballots and approved uh, before voters on firearms restrictions in 2014, 2016, 2018. Uh, and then uh, Democrats gained full control of the legislature in uh, starting in 2018 and started to do smaller uh, or gun restrictions or, you know, maybe not as sweeping ones. Uh, and moving them through the legislature. And I think to Melissa's point, uh, last year's um, law banning high-capacity ammunition magazines, that's probably the first really big sort of restrictions that were put through the legislature. And then, of course, they led to to this year. And there's the, the two other uh, laws this year are, one creates some uh, liability for firearms manufacturers, uh, but another one will institute a 10-day waiting period for all would-be gun buyers, as well as uh, requiring you to have a safety uh, training uh, certificate. So that's a pretty sweeping measure as well. It was rolled back, though. It is noteworthy that they, they originally was a permit permitting requirement in that bill um, that would have actually required people to get sort of a permit or a, a license to own a firearm. That was taken out. That was deemed for whatever reason, too far to go, even though I believe some other states do have similar registration requirements. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember Inslee talking about that uh, at the beginning of the session, sounding a lot more like a driver's license, but but now it's a, a safety class? Or... Yeah, you have to do a safety class and you have to kind of show that you did that. So, I mean, arguably, maybe that's similar, um, but, you know, it's, it is different than having to get an actual card to get a gun. Joe, not everyone supports this legislation Obviously, for example, there's already been a lawsuit filed against the assault weapons ban. Can you tell us a little bit about that lawsuit and what do your sources say about the likely outcomes of this suit? Your, I guess your first question. So, uh, you know, the, the firearms community, um, you know, it's nationally sort of the states are splitting off, right? And you see conservative states rolling back the restrictions they have. While you see more progressive states putting forward, you know, newer restrictions um, and more restrictions on guns, and with that sort of change, uh, the um, Second Amendment Foundation, which is a Bellevue uh, gun rights group, and, and other groups have have spent a lot of time really focusing on court uh, cases to overturn laws, and also to take cases up to the Supreme Court to see if we, you know, there might be more rulings up there enshrining the Second Amendment and making it stronger sort of on the record. Um, so this is, um, you know, can be seen sort of through that lens. And, you know, in Washington state, plenty of courts have held up, um, upheld gun restrictions uh, before. Uh, our Democratic lawmakers say they styled uh, our legislation off some other states that have already had and, and succeeded against court challenges. But of course, you never know what a court's going to do. And we do have a United States Supreme Court that is 
uh, totally more conservative these days. And it remains to be seen how they'll their you know decisions up there, even maybe from another state, remains to be seen how they'll shape uh, laws in our own states in the coming years. Let's uh, close this section by talking about the big picture. Of course, we are kind of touching on that already, but big picture politically, I'd like to hear from both of you, Melissa. What do you think the political implications of this suite of firearms bills will be in Washington state going forward and potentially across the country? Well, you know, we're the 10th state to enact something like this. Hawaii has a sort of unique law. All the states kind of have sort of unique laws, but the 10th state to ban some form of so-called assault weapons. And, you know, that does put us in the, you know, 20% of states that have done this, a minority of sort of blue states that have taken this step. And that really sort of fits in with what a lot of um, this session was about to me was sort of distinguishing Washington from some of the conservative states passing um, you know, either loosening gun restrictions in some cases or not taking action, but in other areas as well, especially on abortion and when it came to um, health care for transgender people, the state also was trying to distinguish itself on that. So we saw a lot of bills sort of protecting abortion access or trying to sort of push back against other states' laws. So it's almost as if the Democrats and the majority in Olympia, it's like their opponents were almost not even in the Capitol, it's like the other states that are doing this stuff was sort of had this huge presence, this, this huge presence in Olympia this year, I think. And and Joe, same question for you uh, regarding f- firearms. What, what do you think the political implications of this suite of firearms bills will be in Washington state and well, elsewhere? I think Melissa hits the nail on the head is that, you know, Washington state's sort of taking sort of a stand and charting a course in the direction that it it sees, uh, you know, the, the Democratic lawmakers want the laws to go. Um, you know, with guns, it's it's always a little difficult because, first of all, there's so many guns, right? And Washington, when you think Washington, you know, we're, we're an old Western state, right? We had very loose gun laws for uh, a long time culturally. They're kind of part of, of parts of the community. I, I don't know what the short-term impacts will be. There's a lot of firearms out there. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, more people die in Washington state from suicide rather than homicide. Uh, more more firearm fatalities uh, come from handguns as opposed to rifles in Washington state. Um, so we'll we'll sort of see. I mean, I think when you I, when I think about these laws, you think of like a lot of different laws they've passed over many different years. At some point, you would imagine they'll start to add up or not. And, and we'll find out. I do agree with the Democrats who thought they wouldn't get blowback. I think that's probably correct, given that the voters actually kind of led the way on gun control in our state with a bunch of initiatives um, between, I think, you know, in the in the 2010s. So we, and in 2018, the voters passed a measure that raised the age to purchase semi-automatic rifles um, to 21. And they've been doing stuff like that. So the voters actually were ahead of the legislature on this a little. So I don't think there'll be some huge outrage with voters trying to get these people out. But I do think nationally people will be saying, look at Washington, this liberal left coast state or what, look at what they're doing. And um, there'll be people saying that in our state too, but I don't know if there's enough of them to kind of unelect all the Democrats who did this. Mm-hmm. Melissa, uh, you, you already brought up something I was going to ask you. Speaking of other nationally resonant issues, um, the way that the Washington state legislature has sort of been bucking some national trends we've been seeing in Republican controlled state legislatures regarding 
specifically regarding uh, abortion and gender-affirming care. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the bills that we saw uh, the legislature passed this this spring in that regard. Could you tell us about those bills and, and the reasoning behind them? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ones that the governors just signed into law is what some rec- refer to as an abortion shield law, sort of. It, it basically says that if people come to Washington state to get an abortion and they're coming from a state that restricts that practice, restricts that procedure, um, our law enforcement can't, you know, send over information. Courts aren't supposed to participate in, with subpoenas to assist with those other states' investigations because some states have made it uh, have a criminal penalty to uh, have an abortion. And same for doctors who maybe provide those abortions to out-of-state residents who travel to Washington. There's been a big concern about those state laws in Texas and Idaho that have really cracked down on abortion. Um reaching over state lines into Washington and other states that still allow abortion because we have it protected in our law. Um, And so this is designed to sort of create a wall between Washington and those other states so that those laws can't reach over here. And it also applies to uh, gender affirming care that people may seek if they're transgender and want um, uh, either uh, some sort of medical treatment or that confirms their gender identity or conforms with their gender identity to kind of support them there. We allow that sort of broadly and have been expanding even insurance coverage for that kind of care, while other states have been really limiting it, especially for minors. So these same bills that apply to abortion also will prevent um, other states that are investigating or trying to create legal legal liability for people who get gender-affirming care. It will protect those people from some of the reach of those laws if they have come to Washington to meet with a doctor here. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these bills, if you kind of look at them on, um, you know, the way that the vote lines up, they are really Democratic agenda items. I mean, they really do follow along party lines. Do you get the sense that uh, Democrats feel like they've kind of gotten what they wanted on these issues? Do you, do you get the sense that they might revisit any parts of these issues in the next session? I, on abortion, I mean, they didn't get everything they might have wanted. For instance, Governor Inslee was talking about a constitutional amendment to, that would protect the right to abortion in our state constitution. That did not happen. It takes two thirds vote of the legislature to amend the constitution. Um, and there are Republicans who exist in the legislature. And it's more than a third of the legislature is Republican still. So that did not happen. And um, I mean, on it never was going to happen, honestly, but um it was something that the governor and others said would help provide greater protection to ensure future legislatures can't roll back our abortion protections. So they didn't get everything. I mean, will they revisit that? Perhaps, but it's it's, it's always going to be a long shot. I don't, I'm trying to think if there's ever been a time when there's been that few Republicans who, you know, largely have been um, anti-abortion uh, in the legislature. There hasn't been less than a third Republicans than any time I can remember looking back. It's been a long time, at least. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now I want to keep moving, keep moving. There's a lot that happened this session. Um, I want to move on to another really huge issue for the country, but also certainly the state of Washington and one that was not, in fact, uh, dictated by the Democrats. Um, there was a rare bipartisan effort uh, this session to tackle the state's housing affordability crisis. Um, Joe, could you first tell us about House Bill 1110 and the missing middle? 
What does that bill do and why is it significant? Would you say? Yeah, so this this bill is sort of um, probably the, the keystone of a sort of a slate of housing bills that passed this year, um, surprising even some of their supporters. Uh, the bill starts to get rid of, you know, single family zoning and uh, exclusionary zoning in cities that have kind of you know, dictated where people live and, and where people can't. And um, so House Bill 1110 weakened as it went through the legislature, but it still provides there for to be uh, duplexes in a lot of neighborhoods across the state now, and also fourplexes and sixplexes up in, in larger cities, I believe. And so uh, the idea is that, you know, we're somewhere north of 200,000 homes short at the moment already. And we're continuing to fall behind every year um, for the people that live here and then also are going to move um, in the coming years. And in fact, legislative leaders, I think it was a Department of Commerce report, concluded that we're going to need another million units of housing in the next 20 years or so. But zoning laws, housing legislation, it can be unpopular in neighborhoods. Uh, the cities uh, resisted some of these proposals um, or sort of worked to kind of get them to a a less ambitious place that they felt they could support. And there were other bills that passed this year too on uh, to streamline permitting and make that easier. And um, there was a bill, another bill to pass that start to address the systemic uh, discrimination uh, in housing with people of color being locked out of neighborhoods for generations. Uh, it sort of also gets into single family zoning. So lawmakers uh, got uh, done a, sort of a surprising amount uh, on this uh, front this year. Yeah, and I was curious about that because I know some of your reporting had mentioned that some of these bills um, regarding density, regarding zoning, some of these bills or some versions of these bills had kind of been languishing for years before they were taken up this time. And I was curious, uh, why do you think this session, what changed and why now? Well, two key bills uh, failed last year, the middle housing proposal last year, as well as another one on accessory dwelling units, you know, like backyard cottages, uh, and, and legislation on that passed this year, too. But what happened was that a bipartisan group of lawmakers got together with um, a sort of an eclectic group of organizations across the state, from very progressive organizations in Seattle, like the Sightline Institute and Fuse Washington, all the way to very conservative sort of institutions politically, usually like the Building Industry Association of Washington, and then trade unions like the master uh, builders of King and Snohomish County. And they all got together and said, and signed a letter and said, look, we need to, we need to make some real progress on this uh, this year. It's bad for low-income people. This is a contributed to historic uh, systemic discrimination. Uh, it's bad for the business climate. There's reports out there saying that. And of course, you've got to consider about uh, preserving uh, Washington's agricultural land too, when you have a lot of sprawl. And so, so a lot of people came together and said, we need more density. And there are powerful interests that can often stop bills like that. Uh, but this year, lawmakers were able to get them uh, past the finish line. Melissa, did you have any thoughts on, yeah, I, on that? I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there also were some interesting carve-outs sort of created um, this year. There, there was a, initially this bill kind of would have required, you know, fourplexes and sixplexes in, I mean, most cities over a certain size and even um, duplexes in a lot of other smaller ones. And there's sort of some provisions in there now that allow um, cities to only apply these new density requirements, which are less stringent anyway. You know, they're, they're not requiring necessarily fourplexes and sixplexes in as many places as the earlier versions of the bill. But there's also this sort of position 
that, that cities could take saying, we only need to apply these increased density requirements to three quarters of our, our residential lots. And um, I suspect a lot of cities will take advantage of that. And, you know, that kind of, they, they can do that to say, you know, some of these areas are at risk of displacing longtime residents in a way we don't want to see. I'm interested to see how many cities you know, choose to apply this to only 75% of their city. And there's some hoops they have to go through to do that. But I think without that flexibility added to the bill, um, the cities may not have gotten on board in the same way um, to get this through the legislature. Mm. Also, Melissa, there were some big housing proposals that did not pass uh, this session. Um, First off, there was that $4 billion bond proposal that Governor Inslee was going to pass on to voters. There was, I believe, a real estate excise tax proposal. And then uh, I'm a renter, so I was watching the proposal to put a cap on rent increases. (laughs) None of those passed. So yeah, so Melissa, I was wondering, what are your thoughts on why didn't these things pass? You know, anytime you're going to ask voters for something, I think legislators think about it very carefully. In this particular case, it wouldn't necessarily have directly raised any sort of tax on individual um, homeowners or renters to pass the governor's $4 billion um, plan to build housing. But I I mean, it would have increased the state's debt level. That's why you would have needed to go to voters for permission. And, you know, Republicans certainly argued, hey, this will kind of create some carryover effects where maybe there'll be taxes raised in other areas to kind of cover some of this debt service that this would incur. Um, So I think that it's just hard to go to voters for something, um, you know, like that. It would have perhaps made the session more about you know, asking voters for things than some of the other significant things they were trying to focus on, like gun measures. Um, Also, I think that the landlord lobby is extremely strong in Olympia. That's always been the case. And some of the proposals to limit rent increases to, you know, the the, the inflation or three to seven percent, sort of whatever um, uh, is required by the bill. There were various versions that was hard for landlords to stomach. And there was some concern that it might increase the cost of housing or by, and have some landlords be less likely to rent their properties. And, and I think that that's always something that um, comes up at the legislature. Um, and there, there might be some truth to that, but it's just a, a really hard thing to do when they're focused on these other bills. You just can only do so much in a session sometimes for lawmakers. And I think they kind of chose to focus on the a missing middle housing bill and the density requirements. And so maybe next year they'll focus again on the sort of, it's not exactly rent control, but sort of limiting the rent increases. That might be an issue that comes up again next year. I'm sure it'll come up, but maybe they'll be more inclined to focus on that issue next year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Joe, Joe, what do you think? I'm just curious. Uh, I think that if you ask the lawmakers themselves, they'll acknowledge that, you know, a lot that they wanted to get done, didn't get done on housing and they'll, they'll be back next year with more uh, proposals. One that died was a a Republican proposal to split lots. So if you own like a five acre lot, you could split lots and just, and put, to put one additional house on there. And that's something that, you know, another way to sort of create more ways to get more housing for people. That proposal will be back next year. I was told by Representative Andrew Marcus. To Melissa's point, you know, when you sort of look about, they, they can't give everything all of their attention and everything's got people opposed to it. 
And so some of the rental legislation um, died. And then, uh, as I understand it, there was another housing bill on transit-oriented development that had that was moving. It was to make sure you know more density in areas, especially in Puget Sound, where there's a lot of transit. And then that got caught up with some people trying to do some uh, rent stuff within that bill too, to try and still get some of that through. And then I think that all got tangled up and that wound up stalling. But I know the transit-oriented development uh, bill will be back next year. And uh, I'm pretty sure some of the other, the rent bills as well. All right. Yeah. So a lot more to do on housing. All right. Well, we got to get to audience questions, but uh, there's another big topic I wanted to cover before we do. Um, speaking of things that did not pass, some of the biggest news to come out of the 11th hour of the legislative session was the fact that lawmakers did not, as promised, come up with a fix to the Blake decision or a resolution to the state's temporary drug possession law, which will sunset on July 1st unless they fix it. So we're in a bit of a drama there. Um, earlier, earlier this week, Governor Inslee did, in fact, announce he'd call a special session so that lawmakers can resolve this issue, maybe. Joe, could you briefly recap for us what happened at the very end of the session with that? Well, lawmakers went into the session in January knowing they wanted to get something done because it's a temporary law that everybody seems to agree isn't working very well, and that's going to end on July 1st. Um, uh, but the House and the Senate had sort of different approaches, and it's a it's an interesting political issue because both Democrats and Republicans are split. House and the Senate is split on different approaches. And they couldn't get a deal through. But you had Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, and House Republicans uh, pretty much in agreement. But House Democrats weren't they weren't uh, fully there on what was coming through the Senate. So they tried to sort of negotiate a compromise. And then around, I think, uh, just before 8 o'clock on Sunday, the last day of the session, they put the bill on the floor. Uh, and Democrats didn't have the votes for it. There were no Republican votes, and Democrats couldn't find enough votes within their own majority to pass the bill. And so it sort of collapsed in a spectacular fashion. People were not very happy about it uh, at the end of the night there. And um, so now they've got to come back and figure out some sort of thing that they can get everybody or enough people on board with. Because uh, for a lot of the proposals they've been considering, it's sort of the center that gives the the majority and you'll you'll see conservative republicans and progressive democrats drop off of a lot of the compromise measures it's a politically uh, tricky thing for sure i mean what specifically are they arguing about exactly i mean i know i know um you know criminal justice drug possession uh can be a politically tricky issue what specifically are the, is it falling apart around Joe, do you want to handle that one or you want me to? <laughs> sure. Go ahead. Well, well, you ju jump in, Melissa, whenever um, you want. Yeah. I mean, the, the level of criminal penalty. I mean, there are folks, including the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington, that think that, that drug possession should be totally decriminalized. And there are people in the legislature who also would prefer that path. Um, and what we have now is a law that does, that right now, the temporary law that you said is expiring July 1st, it makes drug possession a misdemeanor, not a felony like it was before the state Supreme Court struck down that law. But there's also, you know, a, a sense that more that something else needs to happen here. And so there are folks that want to keep it a misdemeanor. 
um, and kind of create a better system for sort of directing people to treatment because right now it's difficult to track that even though the law says people should be sent to treatment um, currently as opposed to get the charge um, just dropped on them. But the others think it should be gross misdemeanor. So that was a lot of the debate. Gross misdemeanor versus misdemeanor. Gross misdemeanor could mean more like jail time of up to a year. And there's some that just felt that was way too harsh of a penalty, um, especially people who really would like to see it totally decriminalized. That was just a no-go for them. Um, it's a, It still wasn't going to be a felony. The, the, none of the Democrats, I think, were going to try and make it a felony again. That's what Republicans, some of them wanted, to be honest. But... Um, yeah, that just debate between whether it should be a simple misdemeanor, which is a much lower penalty, lower fine, lower um, jail time versus a gross misdemeanor was the core thing that I think they couldn't um, agree on. There's a lot of complicated parts of the bill with treatment as well. But I think that that criminal penalty, it was just they disagreed too much over it. Hmm. Yeah. And, and the crux of that is we're talking about like what what criminal penalty should there be, if any, is the question is like, how do you like what will compel people to get treatment? Because even a lot of Republicans will say, you know, some there's some Republicans that would like to return to a felony, but even a lot of Republicans say, you know, we don't want to throw people up, like, you know, into into prison. That's not working. We need to find a way to get people treatment they need. But how do you actually get somebody to go into treatment who doesn't want to? And how do you track that? And the current law right now, the temporary law that's about to expire um, and Melissa, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something like it's a misdemeanor, but the first two times you're, you would be arrested, the offer is supposed to direct you to voluntary treatment. Um, yeah. but, the, but the different cities don't even track who's giving out those referrals or not. And if so they completed you, it. I mean, that's not the other thing that's been a concern. Yeah. The prosecutors don't necessarily know how many times before they've gone to treatment. Is it been how many offenses are we at now? It, that's been a problem. So it's very complicated. And now, so they didn't figure it out um, by the end of the official session. I understand Governor Inslee has announced at least that he's going to call for a special session. What happens next? So the idea is that they're going to figure it out by July 1st. Are they going to figure it out? Probably, maybe, maybe not. What happens if they don't? Um, what do you guys think? I guess there's, I was sort of thinking about this this morning. I, I could be wrong, but I think there's sort of three scenarios. They could not figure it out once again, which would be like a more spectacular failure than what they just did. So I, I imagine that's probably not going to happen. So then the question is, do they do the House Democrats sort of come around to the position of the other three caucuses and they just pass the gross misdemeanor bill, maybe with some more drug treatment elements? I don't know. Or they hammer out a completely new deal uh, between Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate. So I guess we'll we'll see. I think when when the governor put out his news release announcing this, he basically said that you know there's st they're still working on it. They're still talking. Yeah. So there's not there's not a deal yet, uh, even though they'll they'll be set to come back soon. Sometimes the deadline because special sessions expire after 30 days, but you can, the governor could call another one before the July 1st deadline if they haven't been if they're not done. And I'm trying to remember. I mean, there was there was a time they had to finish basically everything, but they had some issues with a. Supreme Court decision on water water rights, and then it, the capital budget got caught up in it. I can't remember, Joe, if they did two special sessions for that or not. I'm trying to remember. But sometimes it's, there's no guarantee that just because the special session is called that they'll do go in there and do it in three days, like I think was what the governor might prefer, you know, a swift resolution to this. They could delay for 30 days 
keep going and have the governor might call another special session. They're coming up to that July 1st deadline and being like, okay, okay, okay. Um, they usually respond to deadlines. Like Joe and I have covered many sessions where 24 hours before um, the governor, the government is set to shut down. They finally come up with a deal to avert a government shutdown with the budget. They've responded to deadlines. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if it takes a lot closer to July 1st than we think for them to kind of come to a political arrangement and agreement, because this is just such a complicated issue with different people and different um, corners of it. It's not really divided by party cleanly either. Mm-hmm. Or we just have no penalties for drug possession come from July 1st. And then the cities, and I've been writing some about this, and I think others have, obviously others have been writing as well. All these city um, council members, including in Seattle, have been proposing their own penalties for public drug use or drug possession. And so it's not necessarily that drug use will be legal everywhere or there'd be no criminal penalties for drug possession anywhere in the state, but they might be local ones that then are different from one jurisdiction to another. You know, Yeah, like I, I think at the end of the day, that's probably the thing that will get them to reach a deal, presuming they get a deal, because I think that's the, you know, how do you, how do you have a state where you go county from county and the drug laws are going to be different in city to city and I, I think they want to avoid that. I do think majority Democrats don't want the message of their session where they there's a lot of things like we talked about that they think they're proud of. They don't want the whole takeaway message to be like, we just decriminalize drugs necessarily with no real plan, with it not being a sort of an intentional decriminalization. I don't think that's what any of them want. Even the people who want decriminalization would rather do it as a conscious choice as opposed to just sort of a political failure to find a plan. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense for sure. All right. We've got a lot of uh, audience questions. I want to get to the audience questions. Um, There's so many. Here we go. Here we go. Um, Well, yeah, let's talk about Inslee a little bit um, because he has announced that he's not running in 2024 for an unprecedented fourth term. So that's kind of a big deal. Here's one version of that question. What do you think the domino effect will be now that Inslee isn't running again? Who will run for what and what positions will open up? Joe and I both written about this, so Joe, you can take it if you want. I don't know. It's uh, well, I'm just going to refer to your work, probably, because you you did the story this week already. I, I did, and then right? I think that I think I did the whole. I, I did a few versions for Crosscut, even of the like, here's what might happen if Inslee runs for president and then doesn't gets a counted position, and all these things that were sort of speculated over the over time. Um, the, we all know, and now it's been made official that Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Is, wants to run for governor. And in fact, he has created a campaign committee to run for governor now. It says it says it's exploratory, but the, it, it's, a, it's a committee to raise funds for a governor run. So he's pretty much running at this point. And there's a lot of people who want to run for attorney general. I mean, State Senator Moncar Dingra, who is um, in, in the chairs the Senate Law and Justice Committee in the state Senate, has told for a couple of years has been interested um, former um, Seattle City Council uh, member Lorena Gonzalez was interested a few years ago. I don't know if she still is. There's going to be a lot of um, trying to get attorney general. And that in turn is going to open up a lot of positions either in the legislature and city councils. And so we, everything's been kind of b- bottled up with Inslee seeking a third term, which was also really um, a rare. So I think there's just going to be a lot of, of shifting around because a lot of people are going to run for the stuff who won't get it. And then their positions will be open in some cases, a lot of the cases anyway. So more people can rise up and, and, and run for those. Mm-hmm. And I think to that point, and, uh, you know, people are, I think are expecting uh, public lands commissioner Hillary France jump into the race too. So there's another statewide elected office that people are going to want to run for. 
and so I, yeah, you we're likely to see a lot of dominoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that I was surprised by this, but uh, well, anyway, we could talk about speculate on lots of scenarios, but there's a state Senator who's kind of been uh, a thorn in some of the more liberal Democrats side, uh, state Senator Mark Mullet did tell me he's really mulling around and people have been asking him to run for governor. And I was, I was like, Oh, okay. But I think he, he would have to not be on the ballot for Senate again. So that could open up some legislative seats. That's kind of how that works. You can't be on the ballot for two offices on the same ballot mm-hmm. in most cases. Um, all right. So, so totally different topic. Um, legislators and the governor have said for several years that mental health is near the top of the legislative agenda. Did they do anything substantial on behavioral health this year, maybe mental or behavioral health this year? They put more money into behavioral health this year and also to um, uh, address, again, the True Blood decision, which was one of two court rulings in um, the last decade that really sort of laid bare the deficiencies in our state's mental health system. But the fact that that court decision on True Blood, I think, came down in 2014, and here we are almost 10 years later, and we're still, the state's still struggling to respond to that. Um, And just to be clear, that was... I'm reaching back into my memory, but that was the court decision about warehousing people in uh, jails who need a competency and re- restoration services or evaluations before they can go to trial. Um, you know, we just have a, a sort of a, a broken pipeline for treatment. And uh, lawmakers and the governor have been putting a lot of money into this for a lot of years now. They've sketched out a, a behavioral health plan to put more facilities all over the state and boost the number of beds, but it's been a struggle for them to to get there. Um, so we'll see. And I think the drug issue has also complicated this because a lot of beds, I mean, there's specific beds for drug t- treatment, but behavioral health is sort of an umbrella term that kind of covers both uh, drug, drug treatment in some cases and mental health services. And I think the focus on trying to ensure that drug treatment's available has kind of siphoned off some of the energy for some of the mental health work, even though it's still happening. And um, I, I think that Blake um, holdup also is going to kind of slow down some of the investments in, in treatment beds and some of the facilities as well that could have been built. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be just your guys' opinion, but interesting question. What's the biggest issue the state legislature isn't tackling and why aren't they? Well, before this year, I would say housing. They've just been they've been really slow to to move on some of the permitting and regulation and zoning stuff that it's just going to take to build a, a whole lot more housing. And and I also say that because it's not just housing as in, oh, you're a home buyer, you're gonna buy a your your first house, you're a middle class person, but a shortage of housing sort of impacts people all up and down the income spectrum. And so when you have less housing, it's gonna make it harder for renters to keep up. It's gonna potentially push more people into homelessness. But I think that we were just talking about mental health, right? Mental health has been something that lawmakers have focused on for many years now, and it's still a problem. And it shows you just how uh, big these societal problems are and how it takes so long for the legislature to be able to kind of identify the problem, figure out some solutions, get moving, and do the things necessary to correct them. So as far as our next problem, I'm not sure. Melissa, is there any pop into your mind? Gosh, I would I would, refer, I would refer to your work, Joe. They don't seem to really care about a lot of government transparency issues anymore. And this is something that's important to journalists, but they just keep trying to like find different ways to hide their working records. It's just kind of frankly annoying. Um, I know that's not a really an issue that probably concerns the public as much, but if we can't really figure out what they're doing, we can't really tell you guys what's happening. And that's always kind of 
annoying. They've kind of just doubled down on new efforts to try to kind of keep their some of their documents secret. Um, and that's pretty disappointing in a way. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a rollback of democracies around the globe, right? We're seeing it harder to get information in the United States from on what your government's doing from the federal government. Our FOIA law is not doing as well as it used to by some metrics. You know, we're moving to a more opaque society and the Democratic majorities here in Washington are going along with that so far. And uh, and we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen how far they're going to uh, take us uh, backsliding. Uh, Washington's Public Record Act is considered uh, sort of nationally recognized as one of the strongest open records uh, laws, good government ethics laws in the nation. Yeah. Another yeah topic for a whole other panel, I feel yeah. like. <laughs> but yeah, but Joe has done a lot of great reporting on on that. So check it out, crosscut.com. Um, I feel like I only have like one more minute. Um, so I might not have enough time to cover this all, but this is sort of related to the shield laws. Do we ever coordinate with other states to try and pass bills to address interstate issues? I think we have on climate change. There's even, uh, and, and taxes actually even, and the, the bills don't always necessarily pass, but earlier this year, there were many states that introduced a wealth tax to kind of target people with a, a billion plus or something in assets. And many states were part of introducing bills the same day. Um, and they on climate change, sometimes we are coordinating. We sorry, we are coordinating with California, trying to kind of make sure when we do carbon exchange markets. I'm not using the right terms now because I'm sort of rushing. But um, when we're doing cap and trade and stuff, that we are not creating a system that doesn't jibe with other states. Yeah, in fact, the cap and trade law, I think, um, in theory, it's going to start to work with other states like California. I think I was even told Quebec, their law in Canada too, and. And the idea is to start to build that network where those states are, are working in concert. And on other things, you know, we might build a bridge finally with uh, Oregon over uh, over the Columbia River, which is a little that one's needed. Um, and, and then I, but I think to Melissa's to earlier, what she was talking about about abortion and gender affirming care too is it, Idaho is an interesting example because it really is where you see the places where the states are starting to split apart a little. I mean, Idaho is right next to us. A lot of people come here for medical treatment and medical care. And our laws, uh, our shield law on abortion and, and transgender affirming care comes as they are passing criminal penalties. Um, you really see these ideological uh, differences. You know, that that's a fault line, the Idaho-Washington border. And uh, we're going to see more of that stuff, I think, in coming years. Absolutely. All right. On that note, um, I think we are officially out of time. Thank you so much to the panelists for sharing their thoughts. Thank you to the audience for joining us today at the Crosscut Festival. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Joseph O'Sullivan and Melissa Santos, produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. 
For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.